Amen. Well, we're in Judges chapter 11. We started this last week, and uh, uh, for those of you who weren't here, we looked at the fact that Jephthah in verse 1 was the son of a man named Gilead, and uh, he was the son of a prostitute, and uh, his birth caused a lot of problems in their family with his half-brothers, and after their father died, after Gilead died, uh, his brothers, half-brothers refused to fair, share the family inheritance with him, and uh, they forced him out of the family home. They kicked him out. And so he became a leader of a band of, uh, you might say, mercenaries <laughs> who protected the people of Israel from their enemies, kind of like a Robin Hood. And um, sometime later, the uh, Ammonites attacked Israel in verse 5, and they, they promised uh, Jephthah if he'd come back and help them defend against the Ammonites and defeat the Ammonites that they would make him their leader. And uh, they were familiar with his military might and they thought we need this guy back on our side. So they went and they asked him to come back in verses 7 to 10. And they said, we'll make you the head of the tribe if you do. And Jephthah answers their call and he returns with them to address this um, Ammonite problem of them attacking Israel. And so we're going to read tonight, beginning in verse 12, and a uh, rather long passage, but we'll, we'll read it and then we'll look through it and see what we can apply. So verse 12 says, Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me, that you have come to fight me, uh, that you have come to me to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, because Israel, on coming up out of Egypt, took away my land. From the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan, now therefore restore it peaceably. And Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up, From Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they sent also to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Verse 18, Then They journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and arrived on the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Verse 19, And Israel then sent messengers to uh, Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon. And Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land to our country. But Sion did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sion gathered all his people together and he camped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sion and all his people into the hand of Israel and they defeated him. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. Verse 22, and they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the wilderness to the Jordan. So then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel 
and are you to uh, take possession uh, of them? Uh, verse 24, will, not, will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? And all that the Lord our God has dispossessed before us, we will possess. Now are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel? Or did he ever go to war with them? While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages, and in uh, Aror and its villages, and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon 300 years, why did you not deliver them within that time? I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. And the Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen <laughs> and the words of Jephthah uh, to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. Verse 29, Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on through um, to uh, Mitzpah of Gilead, and from Mitzpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites, and Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So he makes a vow. Verse 32. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand, and he struck them from uh, Aror to the neighborhood of Manith, 20th, uh, 20 cities, and as far as Abel Karim, uh, Karim, with a great blow, so that the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah said, or came to his home at Mitzvah, and behold, his daughter <laughs> came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months, that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So, she, so, he, uh, so he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did according to the vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughter of his, uh, daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gilead four days in the year. A pretty interesting account that we have here in Scripture. And I title this, Be Careful Little Mouth What You Say. Because, <laughs> you know, you've heard the, the phrase, Be Careful Little Eye What You See. Well, this is Be Careful Little Mouth What You say and so um, the problem here is really 
Jephthah sets out on this venture in verses 12 to 28. And immediately he has this problem with the Ammonites. And they accuse him of, of stealing their land. And it's, it's funny how it almost reads like a modern day newspaper. I mean, they do the same thing with Israel today, right? Oh, that's not your land. You know, you, you stole that and, and everything. And unfortunately, Israel is too politically correct nowadays. So they're constantly giving away their land. Um, but one day that will come back to haunt them as well. But here, that's really the problem that Jephthah is facing with these Ammonites. Uh, he tries a series of diplomatic measures even. He doesn't want to fight with them um, to cool the tensions with the Ammonites, and they don't want to hear it. You know, they just don't want to hear it. Israel does this a lot today. They, they give away certain things thinking, well, this will uh, make their enemies like them more. And it, maybe it works for a couple weeks. <laughs> and then it just blows up again. Uh, and, you know, he wanted to avoid all-out war, even though he was a warrior. So that says something about his character. And so in correspondence with the king of Ammon, we see that he learns that they are attacking Israel because they want back some of this land that Israel took when it entered Canaan that God gave to them. And he, he really, uh, displaying an amazing grasp of Hebrew history, he kind of recounts to them what we read. He answers the Ammonites with several convincing arguments that, wait, this isn't your land. Um, and he, he wants to prove that they are wrong in attacking the people of Israel. And then in verses 14 to 22, uh, he points out that the Israelites did not take this land from the Ammonites. They, they, took, it, um, they, they took it from the Amorites, not the Ammonites, the Amorites who originally took it from the Moabites. So it's, it's kind of this vicious circle. And the Ammonites had no stake in the land at all. And he does a very good job at pointing this out to them. But they still won't listen. And so then we get down to, and we're getting kind of the, the, the gist of what we want to talk about tonight, but we get down to um, verse 23 and 24, and he points out that the Lord had given this land to Israel, and God was given all the glory and the credit for giving them this land. And... Uh, you know, he, he kind of points out to them, he says, hey, you know what? Why don't you just take what your God has given you and be satisfied? It, it, it's, uh, it's an attempt at peace, but at the same time, it's almost mocking them in, in an odd way. Um, and so in verses 25 to 26, he says, look, Israel had lived in this land for hundreds of years. The Ammonites had not tried to claim this land before. During the 300 years that Israel possessed it, why are they attempting to do it now? And verse 27, he, he reminds them that by attacking Israel, they're indeed attacking who? Attacking God. He says, you're, you're going against the Lord, just so you know, if you attack us in any way. He will judge who is right, and he will give the victory to whom he chooses. And it's interesting that Jephthah, as a warrior, is okay with that. He understands how this works. He's been down this road before. This isn't new territory for him. And so the Ammonites, unfortunately, failed to listen to the arguments that he put forth because they, are, they were ignorant of the word of God. And secondly, they didn't care about the will of God. 
And they have no regard for the person of God or the people of God. And today when we talk to different people, sometimes you can argue with them from Scripture. And it's like, you know, water off a duck's back. It doesn't have any impact. They don't care. You know, you can show them where they're wrong according to a biblical principle. They don't care. Why? Because they have no regard for the Word of God. They're ignorant of it. You know, um, and you point out, look, this isn't God's will for your life, but well, they don't care about that either because they have no regard for the person of God himself. And it's, it's Romans 1 all over again. You know, they took the, cre- the creator God and they turned him into an idol to be worshipped through his creation. And that's basically what they did. They don't care about the creator anymore. They just care about his creation. And so... He stands firmly upon the word of God and he declares the facts of the situation that that they're looking at. Now, I can imagine the emotions are running high, right, in this circumstance. I mean, they're about ready to go to war. Usually that heightens people's emotions and reactions. And uh, it's interesting to me how when our emotions get out of whack, we can't even see what's right in front of us as far as the facts go. You know, we just can't see it. And our emotions are controlling us. Our emotions are in control of the situation. And somebody could, you know, I've been in situations where, you know, a tragic accident or something happened medically to somebody. And, you know, the, the EMTs right there talking to the spouse or to the loved one saying, look, it's, it looks bad, but he's going to be all right. It's just a flesh wound. Don't worry about it. And their emotions are just off the hook. They don't even hear that. They think the person's already dead. <laughs> you know, in their minds, and that's how they're reacting. And because their, their emotions get the better of them. And that happens to all of us on occasion. But here, what, what Jephthah is really trying to do, he stands upon the word of God, he stands on the, declares the facts of this situation. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to prevent them from being annihilated in war. He's trying to reason with his enemy, saying, look, this isn't going to turn out good for you. I mean, he was a warrior, he knew how this works. He knows that God will give Israel the victory, and so he's in an attempt to really save their lives. And, and sometimes, when you're trying to save somebody's life who doesn't want to be saved, sometimes it can cost you your own. You know, just talk to a lifeguard. You know, I, I've seen some accounts of lifeguards who are trying to save people um, in the ocean or even in a pool or whatever, and the people who are needed to be saved are so hysterical. I mean, the lifeguard literally just has to punch them in the face and knock them out to save them. Or they're both gone down, you know. And, and that's what happens in these situations. So Je- Jephthah's going, look, I don't want our people to be involved in a battle. We're going to win. I'm trying to save your lives. Uh, but you know what? They don't care. And, and, and what, what this account does is it teaches us the truth that really the best response when we're attacked like this, the best response when we're accused of things, is always a peaceful response. A peaceful response. You know, as believers, um, when we are attacked, it's not always wise to attack back. You know, it's not always wise to attack back. Instead, approach those who are attacking you with offers of peace. You know, I've talked to people over the years in ministry, some people very upset at me over something I taught or something I said, whatever, and they're in your face. And I know what they're saying is not true, 
they took it out of context or whatever. And, you know, you could sit there and you could try to turn the argument around and prove your thing. And the best thing to do in that situation is what? Hey, you know what? I understand how you're feeling. I'm sorry if I offended you. It wasn't intentional. And when they realize you're not fighting with them, what happens? Boy, their emotions just going, oh, wait, did you just apologize? <laughs> I mean, you want to say, yeah, I don't know what for, but yeah, I did apologize. Because <laughs> you're obviously visibly upset. I, I still don't understand it. I mean, you don't tell them that, but in your mind, that's what you're thinking. But, you know, it's a heartfelt thing. You don't want, to, you don't want people to, to look at you in that light. So sometimes you just kind of kind of bite your tongue. And rather than lash out and attack them, you offer them uh, peace. You offer them a road to peace. And if they receive your, your overtures of peace and they reconcile with you, then what, have, what has happened? You've, you've gained a friend, right? If they persist with their attacks, <coughs> where, what do you do? Do you still attack back? No. You know what I do? I just give it over to the Lord and say, you know what, Lord? You know what the truth is. Um, you'll deal with them in your own way, in your own time. And he does. Um, and this isn't something that's, you know, foreign to us. Over in Romans, if you look over in Romans chapter 12, it's a good, good scripture to, for us to be reminded of. Romans chapter 12. And this really hits at the heart of a church functioning as a church. You know, um, because a church is made up of who? Of, of sinners, of imperfect people. And so what Paul tells the Romans, church in Rome there, in verse 17 to 21 of Romans chapter 12, he says, repay no one evil for evil. If someone does evil to you, you, you don't have the right to go and, you know, pay him back. But give thought to do what is, first of all, honorable in the sight of all. In other words, you don't want to give them a reason to continue to lash out. So do what is honorable in the sight of all. Verse 18, <clears throat> if possible, so as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Everybody, believers, unbelievers, live peaceably with them. As far as it depends on you. And that's key, right? As long as it depends on you, you try to live at peace with these folks that are attacking you or unjustly provoking you, whatever it might be. You, you say, you know what, Lord, I'm just going to give this over to you and help me not to respond in kind. <laughs> help me to hold my tongue. Help me to hold my temper. And we're no, none of us are perfect in this area, but as far as it depends on you, he says, live peaceably with all. And then he says, verse 19, beloved, so he's talking to the brothers and sisters in Christ, never avenge yourselves. <laughs> Don't feel you have to go make it right, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And sometimes I think we forget that God sees all this in real time. He knows exactly what you're going through. He knows exactly what people are saying about you. He knows exactly what people attacked you, everything. You don't need to, you know, go out on a, on a hunting mission and hunt these people down and avenge whatever they did to you. Leave that up to the Lord. He'll take care of it. I've seen it too many times says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And then he says, verse 20, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, <laughs> what do you do? Feed him. If he's thirsty, ah, let him, you know, parch to death. No, give him something to drink. And look at what it says. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. 
Now, you don't do it for that reason, right? I mean, you don't want to be nice to people just because, ah, I'm just, and in your mind, you're, you're taking a hot <laughs> bucket of coals and dumping it on their head, and you get some kind of a satisfaction from that. That's not really, you know, what that's, what that's telling us there. But it's saying that if you, if you honestly um, are nice to people, you know, you don't repay evil for evil, but you really are um, gracious in, 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 a, in a big time way. Uh, it, it's, it's not going to be received well generally by them. Um, it refers to an ancient Egyptian custom in which a person who wanted to show public contrition carried a pan of coals burning coals on his head and the coals represented the burning pain of his shame and his guilt and when believers help their enemies this is really what it's pictured it should be it should be to uh, bring shame to such people for their hate and their animosity and um, verse 21 says you don't overcome by evil do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with what is good that that should be the goal of believers especially within the body of christ you know are people going to offend you yes are people going to say things about you definitely that happens i mean you know it's just it, it happens in church life it happens in life generally what is your response to it you know and, and that's what Paul says there. And over in Matthew, if you turn over to Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this very clearly in the Gospel of Matthew, verse 38. He says, you have heard it, that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Right? And uh, that's basically, he's, he's telling them, hey, this is, this is kind of what you heard. But here's what I'm here to tell you. Here's how a believer, a follower of Christ, should... Um, should respond. And that was kind of, you know, limiting out of Exodus. That was from out of Exodus. And it was really limiting um, the retribution to what was, was fit for the crime. In other words, if somebody poked out your eye, you don't get to go lop off his head and take his life. You know, that was kind of the, the indication. But Jesus says in verse 39, but I say to you, Look at this. Do not resist the one who is evil. <laughs> Don't even resist him. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, what do you do? You turn to him the other also. Not in an act of defiance, like, oh, that didn't hurt. Try this one. You know, you don't want to provoke him. He's not saying that. But he's saying don't respond. Don't respond in an adverse way. Verse 40 says, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic... Very vital piece of clothing back then. Let him have your cloak as well. In other words, let him take it all. Because then there's no reason to fight. You know, I think one of the, the, the most interesting things is when people are trying to attack you or people are trying to um, engage you, you know, when you're unwilling to fight them, a lot of times it takes the fight out of them. You know, because then all of a sudden there's no reason to provoke. You know, I've dealt with that with some of the people that used to hang out here at the church and doing drugs and all kinds of things. And I'd go down and in my uh, feeble attempt to try to reach them for Christ, you know. And 
you know, sometimes it went okay. Most times it didn't because usually they were high and they were drunk and, you know, they didn't want somebody telling them they can't be doing that here on this property or whatever. So it usually didn't go over well, but I tried to be nice to them. I tried to reason with them. And usually when the F-bombs would start flowing and, you know, I felt my temperature start to rise, <laughs> like you little punk, you're not going to talk to me that way, um, you know, it's like the Spirit of God would tap me on the shoulder and say, don't do something stupid. You know, don't wallop this kid. Don't touch. Your, I mean, all you have to do is nowadays reach out and grab somebody and, you know, you got a lawsuit. So I'd always say, oh, you want to play this way? Okay, fine. And I'd just walk away. And they'd be laughing, you know, for the next 10 minutes till the cops showed up and hauled them all away. You know, let God do it. It's, it's just, you know, you, you got to play smart with people. You know, just because you're engaged and someone's trying to attack you or whatever, it doesn't mean that you have to always um, fight back. I mean, the, the best defense is if you can get out of the situation, get out of the situation. Verse 41, he says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. So you see here, what, what are we seeing? We're seeing self-sacrifice, aren't we? That's what Christ calls us to. Um, Verse 42, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, and that means they're attacking you for their, you know, they want something from you. It's not somebody who's just hanging out on the street corner and being peaceable about it. Uh, Verse uh, 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Right? What do we call that? We call that God's what? Common grace. Common grace. Verse 46, for if you love those who love you, well, what reward do you have? How does that show anybody the love of Christ? That doesn't show anybody anything. And he says, do not even tax collectors do the same. Um, Verse 47, and if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So you're no, no, no better off than a pagan if that's all you're doing. Verse, verse 48, you therefore must be, what? Perfect, he says, as your fa- heavenly Father is perfect. And so that, that text of Scripture out of Matthew, the only way we can do all this is how? Through the power of the Holy Spirit, right? We can't do this on our own. You know, if someone comes at me and, and attacks me, what do I want to do in my flesh? I want to attack back. I want to prove myself right. I want to, you know, make them feel the pain of and the shame of being wrong you know uh, we have to be careful with that and so this brings us all that to say back to to judges to our our, our main text for tonight verse 29 um, it teaches us a a valuable lesson here Jephthah does in verses 29 to 40 um in these verses, we're going to see a man who makes a very rash, uh, wasn't thinking when he made it, promise or vow, uh, and he really lives to regret it. 
Have you ever done that? Have you ever made somebody a promise and then, why did I do that? You know, uh, we've all done that, right? And we have to be careful with that. Uh, Jephthah teaches us that we need to take heed to every word that comes out of our mouths. And nowhere is that more when it comes to, to the words that we speak to the Lord. And that's what he did here. He made a promise to the Lord. You might remember that song, Be Careful Little Mouth What You Say. For the Father up above is looking down in love, so be careful, little mouth, what you say. Um, in these verses, we're going to learn the truth that what we say matters, especially when we say it to the Lord. That's why it's so important that when we, we are evangelizing, we're talking to an unbeliever, and, and they're eager, <laughs> it seems. Oh, I want to become a Christian. You know, it's very easy for somebody to say, oh, okay, well, here, just pray this prayer. And then, good, thank, welcome to the family. You know, I don't do it that way. Say, well, why do you want to become a Christian? That's my question to him. Well, what do you mean? Well, tell me why you want to become a Christian. And if they can't tell me in a biblical way, I'm not going to lead them in any prayer. Because I don't want to give somebody the false hope of salvation just because they went through a prayer. But you know what? When someone is really, the Lord is working on somebody's heart and, and they're broken and you, you, they hear the gospel and they say, wow, I, I want to commit my life to Christ. And you say, why? And they'll tell you. Well, there's nowhere else to go. There's no other hope. I don't have any other hope other than the grace of Christ that you told me about. I can't, you said I can't work for this. I can't do it. I'm broken. I'm at the bottom of the, the barrel here. I, I need someone to help me. Uh, I can't even help myself at this point. See, somebody like that is ready, right, to commit to that, that commitment that Christ requires of us. And a lot of times we, we, we just want the, you know, the little mark on the wall. Yeah, let another one to the Lord. And sometimes we, we go about it, I think, too quickly. And we have to realize, that, you know, this is God working in somebody's heart. We don't want to manipulate somebody into making a promise that they can't keep, especially to the Lord. And so we want to be, be careful. We want people to know the cost, right? Not only the cost that Christ paid, but he indicated that there's great cost in following him as your Lord and Savior. It's not a free ride. Yeah, our salvation is free. It's by grace and grace alone. We get that. But if you don't think there's a cost to living for Christ in this world today, then you're not living for Christ. <laughs> because I think we all experience it each and every day. And so it, it teaches us that God expects us to keep our vows to him. That's why it's so important when a, a young couple stands before God in the congregation or whatever and, and makes marital vows. You know, it's so important that they understand that, you know, this isn't just a, a, you know, a ceremony, a game here. This is seriously, I mean, you're promising God till death do you part that you will remain together. And it's unfortunate. You see some couples, it's, you know, they're married six months and we don't love each other anymore, so we're going to get a divorce. It's like, you don't have that option. Sorry, <laughs> you know, that, that's, not, that's not in the multiple choice here. Um, you made a promise to God. You made a promise to people that witnessed your your marriage. And you made a vow. And the unfortunate thing is today, 
our word, our vows, our promises mean little, if anything, to anybody. That's why there's so much mistrust in the world, right? So we have to consider these truths that present themselves to us in these verses. And uh, in verse 29 to 31, he talks about Jephthah's vow here. And uh, he, he attempts to make peace. They're rebuffed by the Ammonites. And the stage is set for this all-out war. And Jephthah leads the armies of Gilead to battle. And when he does, he makes a vow to the Lord. That in and of itself is not bad. There's nothing wrong with that. A vow is not something that the Lord requires, though. Um, to not make a vow is not a sin. We have to remind ourselves of that. But to make a vow and not, what, keep it, that's where we get in trouble. That's a very serious thing before the Lord. A vow is that binding promise that involves some kind of a gift or sacrifice. That's what a a vow is in Scripture. Whenever they made vows in Scripture, they were always bound by that vow, and they would either bring an offering or they would make a sacrifice to uh, bind or solidify that promise. What's interesting is vows in the Bible are never made to men. They're always made to God. And... uh, I'll talk more about what the Bible teaches about vows in in a couple minutes here. But let's consider Jephthah's vow here in verse 29 to 30. What's the context of this vow? He he made his vow to the Lord, and he and his men were headed to do battle with the Ammonites. And he wanted certain victory. So he thought, how can I turn this table in my favor, even though it already was? Uh, So he tried to make a, a, a contract, you might say, with the Lord. It's one of those times with the Lord, hey, Lord, if you'll just do this, if you'll just get me out of this, then I'll do this for you. You know, we've all been there. We've all kind of in our mind at least reasoned to some degree. You know, man, if, they, if this disease just gets cured, then I'll really be able to serve the Lord. Or, or if my child just gets saved or turns back to the Lord, then I'll really be able to, you know, we, we do that all the time. Uh, we try to bargain with the Lord. Um, And I think that at times um, we fail to recognize the serious nature of the vows that we make to to our God. So that's the the context. Look at the content. In this vow, he promises to offer up to God. (laughs) And this is where his rashness comes in. Whatever comes out of the house first. Not a smart move. Not a smart move. When he comes home in victory, Lord, whatever comes out of that house, I'm, I'm, I'm going to sacrifice it to you. I'm going to give it to you. Um, and just a simple glance at this vow tells us how foolish, how rash this vow was for him to make. And this is a truth that, unfortunately, Jephthah will learn the hard way <laughs> when he returns home. And that's the problem with most of the promises we make to the Lord. We don't take time necessarily to think them through before we make them. Then when things go don't go exactly like we want them to, well, then we can go back on our vows to Him. That's a very dangerous position to be in. You don't want to do that with the Lord. And the third thing here, we see the character 
of his vow. It was totally unnecessary. He didn't need to do this. He was a warrior. He had this victory in hand. Um, in verse 29, we're told that the Spirit of God was upon Jephthah. He knew God was already on his side. He didn't need to do this. He didn't need to make this promise to the Lord. God was going to give Jephthah and his army the victory just because he made the Lord, he wasn't going to do it just because he made the Lord a bunch of promises. Victory was assured anyway. Why? Because the Lord wanted to give it. So when Jephthah made this vow, even though it wasn't necessary, it was, it was totally unnecessary, it was still binding. It was still binding. It still, his words meant something. And the Lord gave Israel some very specific instructions for the use of vows. And you can just, I don't, I don't know if I put those in your, I don't think I put them in your outline, but you can look them up. We're not going to take time to go through them now, but in Deuteronomy 23, verses 21 to 25, in Leviticus chapter 27, in Numbers chapter 30, in Numbers um, uh, chapter 30. So all those vows, uh, the Lord gives specific instructions for Israel on how to handle these vows, how to make them and how to keep them and all these things. While vows were absolutely voluntary, once a vow was made to God, once those words came out of your mouth, God expected that vow to be paid in full. And we see that in, in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. So when you make a vow to the Lord, He will hold you to it. He holds you to keep that vow. You don't get a pass. It's far better not to promise the Lord anything than to actually make a promise and not keep it. That's very serious ground you're trudging upon if that's, if that's what you're doing. Um, we have to think of back in our own lives. Have there ever been promises that we made to the Lord that we haven't kept? And really, what's required? Repentance. We need to ask God, thank Him for His forgiveness and His grace, but we need to really tell Him, hey, we're sorry. That's important. So we see Jephthah's venture, his vow, and then in verse 32... We see his uh, victory when the children of Israel faced the Ammonites, the field of battle, Israel carried the day. They won hands down. They defeated their enemy. They won a great victory. Um, A couple of thoughts here. First of all, verse 32 tells us who won this victory. It was the Lord, right? It says the Lord gave them into his hand. It was a divine victory. Even though Jephthah was an incredibly talented, mighty warrior, this battle was waged and and the the, the victory was won by the Lord. It tells us very clear that children of Ammon were defeated because the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Israelites. So it was a divine victory. And when you stop and think about it, all of our lives... All the victories in our lives, as believers especially, should be divine victories. You know, when we start tooting our own horn, and we start proclaiming our prowess, you know, having victories in our lives just because of who we are, (laughs) and we leave God out of the picture, uh, that doesn't make God happy. And, And there will be discipline 
waiting. Pretty soon you'll be looking at a situation where there is no victory. And the ironic thing is, when the victories happen in a lot of believers' lives, what do they do? They take credit. But when the victories turn into defeats, they don't take credit for that. They, what do they do? They shake their fist at God. How dare you? You know, where were you? And they get all upset at the Lord because there was no victory to be had. And so we have to keep things in perspective. It was a divine victory. Secondly, it was a decisive victory, verse 32. The language of this verse really tells us how complete this, this victory was. It says, and he struck them. Um, that word smote or, or, or strike, smite, uh, you could say he hit them, he beat them, he slayed them, he killed them um, with a great slaughter. It wasn't just, you know, oh, a couple of them fell down. No, he, he wiped them out. And it gives us the, the parameters of it. Uh, the phrase refers to a great blow, which causes a major wound, a fatal wound, beating, conquest. Um, it has the idea of being overcome with a plague. Just a plague that sweeps through the countryside. It's why we've seen that, right? <laughs> Wipes hundreds of thousands of millions of people out that's kind of what what this defeat was it was a, it was overwhelming and the children of israel swept down on the the ammonites and cut them down just like a plague would is is the indication it was an astounding complete victory and just so you know i mean god is still in the business of giving us these kind of victories uh, he's still defeating enemies he's still o- overcoming our foes so that we can experience his power, his deliverance in our own lives for his glory. You know, regardless what you might be facing today, what kind of overwhelming obstacles standing in your way, um, be assured, God can give you victory. God can allow you to overcome whatever you're facing. And I would encourage you to, re- to remember that any victories we might enjoy in this life are divine in origin. They come to us through our relationship with God because of our relationship with His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we get to this text that I'm about to read in a couple of weeks, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I think it's just an overwhelming... It tells us exactly what the Word of God is even saying throughout the Old Testament about these victories... In 1 Corinthians 15, verse, the end of verse 54 there, it says, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Look at verse 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. 57, but thanks be to God. In other words, you're facing overwhelming odds, but thanks be to God. Who what? who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, when there is victory over some sin, over some enemy, over some difficult period in life, whenever we have a victory like that, we should always be quick to what? To praise the Lord. To thank the Lord for His goodness, for His grace. Thank Him for the victory that He caused to fall on our lap. Because if any victories come our way, it came through him. It came through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he deserves all the glory for it. 
We should never, ever, ever take any credit for any victories in our lives. And uh, Paul points that out in, in Romans 8, verse 37. He says, uh, uh, verse, well, verse 35, he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written? For your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sleep, sheep <laughs> to be slaughtered. Verse 37, no, in all these things we are what? More than conquerors. Just because of who we are? No, because... Uh, through him who loved us. For I am ne- sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I mean, that is an incredible statement of hope. It's an incredible statement of reality. And And sometimes when we're faced with overwhelming odds where maybe we're possibly facing a defeat, we have to put our thinking caps on and remind ourselves, wait a minute, no, I'm in Christ. And he's not going to allow something to happen to me that's, that's going to be um, uh, bad for me. You know, he's, he's going to allow things to happen in my life that make, him, make me more like Christ. In 2 Corinthians 2.14, Paul says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us to triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. So there's a sense of victory in all of our lives, and when that happens, we need to be reminded that, you know what? This is God's victory. He gets credit for it. And then the closing verses here, you just see his vigilance here in verses 34 to 40. It says, basically, the battle's over here. The victory is, is secured. He comes home as this conquering hero, Everybody's singing his praises. I'm sure the vow he made to the Lord was fresh in his mind. I mean, I don't think it was, he forgot it. Clearly he didn't. He fully intended to carry this vow out. See, among other things, Jephthah was a man of his what? Of his word. He was a man of character. And he would not fail to do all that he had promised to the Lord even when it's very difficult to do. So let's look at this man as he fulfills his promises to God. Verse 34 and 35, we see here his, his pain when he arrives home. Can you imagine the first thing he sees coming out of the house is his only daughter? She's his only child. She comes out innocently to greet her father who's returning in victory. She's singing and dancing and a great celebration. Because why? Because the Lord gave him the victory. And gave his people the victory. She's excited to see her daddy come home from this war safe. And to celebrate that he's her hero. I mean, it's very appropriate that this young lady should be filled with pride concerning her father and come out to greet her her dad. But you see Jephthah's response. Basically, his heart's broken. He knows. Wow. Didn't Didn't see this one coming. 
He had promised to give to the Lord whatever comes forth out of those doors to meet him when he came home. And what's he see? His only child singing and celebrating his precious daughter. And it breaks his heart. Why does it break his heart? Because he knows he has to do to her what he fully promised the Lord that he would do. He even tears his clothes, it tells us, as a sign of, of mourning. He cries out, alas, my daughter. And she was probably startled by that. Like, wow. Because the alas is not a, hey, nice to see you. It's like, oh, man, what are you doing here? You know, it's an expression of pain back in the day. It's the same as crying, oh, during a, a trial or a, a tragedy. He then tells her, well, you know, you just brought me very low. And she's probably confused. The phrase means to bring him to his knees. Like he, he wanted, he can't even stand, he had to collapse. The thought of what he must do to his own daughter fills Jephthah with grief. And literally the life is forced out of him. And so the thrill of this victory of war and giving the Lord all the credit completely <coughs> vanishes away in a split second. And he's left with this searing pain of loss and the overwhelming agony of loss. I mean, can you imagine if it was you and that was your only child and you were in this circumstance where you promised the Lord? And you see his problem here in verse 35. When, when, when Jephthah sees his daughter, <clears throat> he tells that he has made a vow to the Lord concerning her. And without question, he knows it has to be fulfilled. There's no, there's no room to fudge here. He was a man of his word. I mean, the, his actions should speak very loudly to us today in our culture because we should also be people of our word. When we tell something, we will tell someone we will do something for them, then we should do it. When we tell someone we will be somewhere at a given time, we should be there. You know, it's not fair to the other person. Oh, yeah, well... We'll meet for lunch at noon, and you show up at 1. <laughs> I mean, you know, you're, you're really saying, well, your time is not worth mine. We should always do what we say we're going to do regardless, even of personal cost, even of inconvenience. I mean, there, there was a time, even in our own country, where uh, people's words were their bond. You know, I've watched some shows on, on TV about, um, I think it was Foods That Built America or whatever, and, and some of these, these companies would go against each other, you know, uh, whether it's Frito-Lay or whatever, and they would have, and, and some of these times they would have agreements and they'd say, you know what, yeah, just on a handshake, no contract, just a simple handshake. Why? Because their word meant something. And so those days are past, unfortunately. Um, 
you have to have a contract after a contract after a contract, signed, sealed, delivered, notarized, everything, and then still people find ways to get out of it. Uh, a person's word is no longer taken at face value. And people, unfortunately, cover themselves so that they can uh, sue when someone uh, reneges on a deal or whatever. That should never be true of a child of God. Your word should mean something, especially as a Christian. When we give our word, we ought to be a people of our word. We ought to say what we mean and mean what we say and stand by any promises that we make, any vows that we make. And this is especially true when the person to whom you're making a promise is the Lord. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25 says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you, once again, he's talking to the church at Ephesus, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Ephesians 4.25 Remember, he's talking to Christians here. He's talking to churches. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 9, he has to tell them, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. In other words, this shouldn't be going on in the body of Christ. It does, but it shouldn't be. And so we just need to be be reminded that, you know what, the problem that Jephthah had here is the same problem that so many of us have today. And then in verse 36 to 40, his performance, what's he do? He and his, his daughter incredibly encourages her father to do all that he had promised the Lord he would do. What a step of faith. Think about that. Um, she asked for some time to mourn her virginity. She was still a virgin, no children. Uh, and this girl was apparently uh, willing and able and ready to make huge sacrifice to help her father honor his rash vow to the Lord. So she willingly gave up the joy of becoming a wife and a mother. She sacrificed the dream of every Israelite girl that was dream. That was the dream of giving birth to the Messiah. I mean, they all pondered that. She sacrificed her dreams to help her father fulfill his vow to the Lord. And she goes away with her friends for two months, and they kind of mourn over her virginity, at which she, she would never be a wife, she would never be a mother. And when she returned home, her father fulfilled his vow to the Lord and did with her the thing that he promised to do. In verse 39, it, it tells us that um, she had never known a man and so it became this, this custom in Israel. And so her friends came every year for four days to lament the daughter of Jephthah. Now, here's the, the question. Did Jephthah really offer his daughter up as a burnt offering to the Lord? Or is there some form of explanation here um, for what, what went on? Um, it's been hotly debated among theologians for thousands of years 
a lot of people believe that Jephthah offered up his daughter as a burnt offering to the Lord. That was his vow. That's what he did. That would kind of fit. Um, But other men teach that he actually fulfilled his vow by dedicating his daughter to serve in the tabernacle for the rest of her life. Uh, We're not really told. Okay. So some people lean toward the second interpretation. Some people lean toward the first. We don't know. But he, irregardless, uh, she remained a, if she was serving the tabernacle, she remained a, a virgin the rest of her life, never had a husband, never had children. Great sacrifice because of his vow. If he sacrificed her, then obviously she lost her life. So... In verse 31, you see the language that he he uses here. It's kind of ambiguous. He says, Then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's. And I will offer her up as and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. The word whatever there suggests that he did not know who or what he would see first. So being the fact that that's a rash vow. But then he says, shall surely be the Lord's. So some people say, well, that indicates that he committed her to the Lord. He didn't take her life. Um, And you can go back and forth on that. If it is maybe, you know, an animal that he sees first, then he offers up that animal as a burnt offering. Um, but God would never have approved of or accepted a burnt offering. This is what some people say. Jephthah would have known about Abraham and Isaac, Genesis 22, and how the Lord intervened and, and prevented Abraham from actually offering up Isaac as a burnt offering. He would have known the various teachings about in the law that prevented human sacrifice. So a lot of people believe that Um, He would not have honored, he would not have taken his daughter's life uh, because God would not have honored a human sacrifice. So there's different different people that believe different things about this. Um, It would be be doubtful that a man guilty of such a despicable crime, if he did offer up his daughter as a human sacrifice, would be listed in Hebrews 11.32 is the heroes of the faith. Um, so, while the days of the judges, though, were <clears throat> a lawless time, some people say, I can't conceive how, a, how the men of Israel would allow Jephthah to offer up his daughter. Uh, in 1 Samuel, we're told about Saul, who made a, a rash vow and threatened to kill uh, Jonathan, his son, his own soldiers, what did they do? They intervened. They stopped him from killing Jonathan. And other people say, well, where would he have offered the sacrifice? Uh, only God accepts sacrifices that were offered at the tabernacle. That's in Leviticus chapter 17. God only accepts sacrifices offered up by Levitical priests. So there's a lot of evidence that seems to indicate Maybe he didn't sacrifice her. Uh, I think it did cost him this vow, whether it was her life or 
the rest of her life serving in the tabernacle either way. Um, and I think that, you know, we need to be reminded that, you know, when, when we make vows, when we make uh, promises, that our words have, have meaning. And they, they should mean something. So we, we have to be a key people characterized by the truth. Never let it be said of a child of God that they fail to keep their word or they're dishonest in any way. Um, secondly, vows made to God are sacred. I think we've seen that. They must be kept. Be careful what you promise God. And it's always evil to fulfill an evil vow. <laughs> uh, while God expects us to do what we say, he does not expect us to violate his law in the process. It's a simple thing to make a vow that involves something evil. And it would be even more evil to carry it out. So that's a reason that we don't believe that he probably did. And then also, never try to strike a bargain with God. Um, We have to remember that our plans um, change, but our plans will never change his plan because God's plan does not change. God will have his plan carried out. And so we don't need to have a bargaining chip with God regardless of what you offer him. You're not going to change his mind about what he plans to do in and through you or for you because God is sovereign and he's not going to be coerced he's not going to be talked into something you know sometimes I hear people praying and it's like they're they're uh, you know they're trying to barter with God um, God is sovereign he won't be coerced in anything unless it's his perfect plan And we're to walk by faith. We're to trust the Lord and do all that he desires us to do and through us. Um, So he, he, I guess the principle is don't don't try to bargain with God. Just obey him. Just obey him. Just do what he tells you to do. So remember, you know, if the Lord has spoken to you tonight about being honest about your word, about your vow to love him, to serve him, to obey him forever. Uh, stop and think about that. How's that going? Are you keeping your vow? Uh, that vow to honor him with your life, with your income, with your material blessings, with your time, with your talent, your treasure. How's that going for you? And we really want to listen to him each and every day. And he'll, he'll instruct us in what he expects from us. And then we simply desire, we should desire to obey that. So that's the, the lesson of Jephthah. So you be careful, little mouth, what you say. Well, let's pray, and then we'll have some fellowship. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, it's a hard thing to think that this father would actually consider sacrificing his own daughter. And uh, whether he did that, it still cost him, even if she lived apart from him for the rest of her life, serving in the tabernacle, maybe. A lot of people believe that's what she did. Um, Lord, we pray that you would just uh, remind us that when we entertain uh, making a vow to you, that it's a very serious thing. But it's also equally serious when we make a promise to someone else. And Father, whether that's being at a certain place at a certain time or fulfilling a certain responsibility or doing whatever, 
Lord, I pray that you would help us to take our word seriously because our very character um, is a, really depicted by what comes out of our mouth and whether we keep our promises or not. Lord, none of us are perfect, but Father, we should always strive to be above reproach in all these, all these ways and manners. And Lord, just help us to live lives that are honoring to you. And Lord, for the victories, we praise you. And Father, when we go through a hard time, we praise you. And Lord, we trust you through it all. And we just thank you for our time here tonight. I pray you bless each one and bless our fellowship. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.